Live and learn. Okay, here we are, Hammer Factor. My name is John Grace on the horn with John Weld, legend, Lewis Geltman, legend. Let's get right into it. Headline says it's time to start drilling in the national parks. Lewis, what's going on? Where is this at? What document? Man, every moment's a thrill when you're living through the end of days. Um, <laughs> so, uh, John Grace, as usual, has his finger on the pulse of all of these things. This bill got introduced last night, and I had an email from him first thing this morning being like, what's going on with this? So, He's at the data center over there in Asheville. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're it's just awesome. jealous we have the internet, Will. <laughs> We're working on it. Um, so I gave this thing a quick look. Um, this is a uh, – do you guys know anything about the Congressional Review Act? can really get into the weeds here briefly. Lay it on the uh, Let's get in the weeds. So the way, uh, the way it works with agencies and rulemaking is like Congress writes a law like, uh, I don't know, like the National Forest Management Act. And it says, all right, Forest Service, you have to create a forest management plan for every, uh, you know, every national forest every 15 years. Like, and here are the things that have to be in it and that's it. But then the Forest Service has to figure out how they're actually going to put that into effect. And the way they do that is through rulemaking. So the Forest Service makes a rule that uh, like implements the law, basically. And it has to kind of, within reasonable boundaries, be in conformance with what the law says. But it you know, is much more specific in its scope. So when the agencies make these, do these rulemakings, Congress, with this thing that was created in the 90s called the Congressional Review Act, can basically veto the rulemaking of the agencies within 60 days of the rule becoming final. And so that is something that's going to be kind of, uh, kind of hot right now because, you know, the Obama administration finished all these rulemakings that, you know, took, you know, several years for a lot of them. They all got, a lot of things got wrapped up right at the end of the, administration so now the republicans have republican congress republican in the white house and they want to go back and undo all these rulemakings that got put into place by the obama administration right does that make sense yep Mm -hmm. and so basically these uh these like i don't know what you want to call it these like repeal of regulations under the Congressional Review Act, like they can move through Congress with kind of, I mean, it has to be passed like a normal law, like it has to pass the House, it has to pass the Senate, it has to get signed by the president, but it moves through Congress with much more streamlined procedures. So there, I think there'd be like no opportunity to filibuster it in the Senate. I don't think it has to even move through committees necessarily in, in the house but i have to i don't know, I have to look at the specifics of it but it just moves much more rapidly so this thing that you sent around john was from the uh you know one of the national parks advocacy groups and the bill is uh house joint res 46 and it has to do with the rules that govern um like oil and gas development inside national parks and the reason that that's even possible in the first place is that sometimes there are uh 
there's something called like a split estate where you can own, I'm sure, well, you probably know a lot about this in Pennsylvania, where uh, you own the surface rights to the land, but someone else owns yeah. uh, the, the mineral uh, rights. The mineral rights underneath. Yeah. And so there are places where, you know, somebody might have granted land to the National Park Service, but only the right. surface rights and not the development rights. So there are these right. like kind of limited places in national parks where somebody else other than you know, the public owns the mineral rights that are underneath the national park. That's actually the case with Ohio Pile. I believe Ohio Pile State Park has, I don't think when they got that property, they did the due diligence to get the mineral rights. I think that's a, an issue. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. So I'm looking actually at this, at the rulemaking that the, uh, you know, that these guys want to overturn. And it mentions some of the places that well, this... Uh, I have a I have a list here of the forty places, and I remember a couple of weeks ago I was talking about the Big South Fort National Recreation Area. That's one of them. Golly River, yep. Golly River. Yep. You guys have heard of that one. New River Gorge. You've you've heard yep. of that one. Everglades National Park, Mammoth Cave National Far Park, Grand Teton National Park, um, Glen Canyon National Park. The list it's pretty easy to find. You can do a, a simple search for it. So, I actually see, I'm looking at the rulemaking and it says 534 non-federal oil and gas operations in a total of 12 system units. So but maybe that's just what's ongoing right now. Obed, Wild and Scenic, that's one of you, that's in your zone, right? Yep, yep, that's in, that's in my zone. And, and so basically what happens is these places um, that they either were grandfathered in or they put these wells in, but the National Park Service had the opportunity to have some oversight, safety, environmental regulations. But now they're being stripped of that power, and that's being given to the state or someone locally. Is that, is that what I'm getting? No, I, I looked at it really quickly, but my understanding is that there were some 1978 regulations that kind of governed how you know, how these operations were, you know, how the oversight worked for these oil and gas operations. And they wanted to replace them with more modern regulations, basically, and kind of, I would assume, stronger safeguards. And so I think that if this were overturned with the CRA, it would go back to the 1978 regulations. But again, I, this is, I'm just looking at this now, like really quickly. So I don't want to uh, claim expertise I don't have on this. Well, but some, it's certainly something we'll look into, I, and uh, you know, we'll put something up on the on the OA blog, and I don't know, try and get a little more explanation of it. And there's a couple of other things that are kind of up for CRA review that are things that we've worked on a little bit more. I mean, so what's covering. what's what's I mean, what are we looking at for the next? I mean, you're, we're getting an idea of how things are headed. I mean, what's the vision? I mean, Congress isn't saying we're going to make. America, a giant slag heap. You know, what I mean, that's not obviously not their message. They're gonna, they're saying we want X. Like, what is their, what is their message? We just want. I think the message is that they want economic development over, uh, you know, environmental protection, or that we've constrained the ability of businesses to make money too much. We want to undo these regulations and kick more things to, you know, the private sector, or just no oversight at all, or you know, the hope that the states are going to do a good job of regulating these things on their own. But 
I think to me, I see that as kind of disingenuous when you see all the places where the states do a good job of regulating and, you know, the Republicans are, are after that as well. Like, you know, Pruitt and his confirmation hearings. I know, again, this is getting kind of in the weeds, but, uh, you know, like California can't, under the Clean Air Act is able to enact more stringent clean air requirements for vehicles than the national standard. And Pruitt wouldn't even commit to allowing that uh, that waiver that allows them to enact more stringent standards to continue to exist. You know, it's like California wants to have stronger clean air protections than the rest of the country. And, you know, the Republicans in Congress are like, we don't even want to let you guys do that. It's like, you know, the idea that this is about states' rights or something to me seems pretty disingenuous. I think it's just really about the power of business over public health and over the environment. Right. I mean, the country has had that that kind of situation in the past. I mean, what's what's it going to look like in four years if left unconstrained? I mean, what are we going to see? I mean, I mean, you and I both. I think we talked about this before. You and I. I you probably too young to remember this, but I remember the Potomac being not a very clean river at all. Like it was a nasty place to paddle. You know. Yeah. Up I mean, until guess, the eighties, you know. I mean, I guess I kind of take heart from that a little bit in that. You know, we did bring a lot of these places back from the brink and we might have to do it again. It's, it's you know, I guess I, I hate to be as pessimistic as I honestly feel about it. But, you know, it's hard not to see things taking a big step backwards. But, you know, I think, you know, the way we're thinking about this stuff going forward is, you know, I think kind of our our roots as an organization a lot in a lot of ways has been you know, the policy professionals at our member organizations, our executive director, me, you know, writing kind of, you know, sort of like persuasive letters to Congress and sort of explaining these things in a technical way and kind of explaining the values of our community and trying to be really reasoned about, you know, how we're thinking about public lands management. And it seems like going forward, there's just going to be, you know, I think that that needs to be a little bit smaller part of our approach and what really is going to make the difference is going to be all of us as a community being you know really effective advocates and we want to help you know everyone like our listeners to have the information they need to reach out to their congress people regularly and let people know that there's you know political will behind this stuff it's not just about what's a good idea it's like these guys you know i think that what's going to make the difference moving forward is not like what's a great idea it's what gets people fired up, you know, like what, what are these guys in Congress hearing about every day from their constituents and helping them understand that if they, you know, proceed with things like making it easier to drill in national parks, that people are going to be pissed and that they're going to hear about it. And it's going to be a big deal, you know, like that's, what's going to make the difference. Not us being like, well, you know, it's really important to, you know, writing some persuasive letter about it or something. It's like, what matters is that all of us show up consistently. And so I think we're really trying to, do a better job of sharing those opportunities with our kind of broader community and trying to get everybody to mobilize and, and weigh in with, with Congress. So I have a, a little bit of a, you know, maybe there's a silver lining in this. And we were talking about this a little bit off the air before we started recording that uh, this <clears throat> NPCA organization, um, they have been an impediment to other recreational users, kayakers in Yellowstone, um, I'm sure mountain bikers and other recreational users and it's and but now I'm sure that this organization that's putting this out here would be interested in 
help from the mountain biking community and help from the paddling community and whatnot. So maybe there's, you know, an opportunity for people who are interested in recreation, not just the commerce of our kind of public lands. Maybe this is an opportunity for everybody to come together under under one umbrella. And, yeah. You know, organizations like this maybe wouldn't think that the paddling community is the boogeyman now because they are coming to their defense to, to preserve these lands and vice versa. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think it's it's on us. I mean, I don't I think that the way to go forward is for us to you know, exhibit our power as a community and let those guys see that they need us. Right. It's like, you know, we can do that where we can be our own voice on these on these issues. Right. Like, I think that it's important. You know, something we think about a lot is, you know, the sportsmen's groups like there are some good, really good hunting and angling advocacy groups that are really conservation oriented and that have, you know, a very different voice than the traditional conservation groups and have an ability to reach, you know, more conservative lawmakers in a way that like the Sierra club is never going to have. And I think that we try to, you know, create a similar identity for our community, right? Like when we do advocacy stuff, we think it's important that we're not just perceived as like another conservation group. Like we're, you know, socially distinct, historically distinct, movement that's interested in protecting these places for you know for their intrinsic value but also for the value of the experiences that they provide for people and so you know we for example we don't do a lot of you know like a lot of the times there'll be these like huge sign-on letters with you know 100 or 200 environmental groups that go to congress and like we typically like don't sign on to those letters even though we work really closely with a lot of those organizations because we really want to preserve our own identity as the outdoor recreation community. Like we care about conservation, but we're, you know, slightly different. Like we're, this isn't just, this isn't just like hypothetical for us. Like these are places that we go, that we care about, that we have a direct experience with and a direct interest in. And so I think kind of maintaining that, that identity is, is important and you know, helps us be more effective advocates. Well, I expect you to be on a flight soon, Lewis, and uh, out there and start banging some heads, man. Get in there. (laughs) (laughs) Outdoorlines.org. Get on the newsletter. Stay up to date. Things are happening so fast. I saw a headline. Drilling National Parks. Read through the article. In the middle of the night, it gets propositioned. (laughs) No one's going to stop it. It's going through, you know. Head out of the ass. Do it. All right. Thank you for that, Lewis. Thank you, John. Moving on. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Well's over it. He wants to talk about dry suits. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're like, well, we're we're screwed. We don't need dry suits down here anymore, dude. We used to need dry suits, but that day is done, man. It's like 70 degrees again today. Is it really? Yeah, it's off the hook. The grass is good. I'm gonna have to cut my grass next week. Um. (laughs) All right. Now moving to our gear segment. (laughs) <laughs> which we've never done sorry, I, but I always I'm, want to do I'm totally Actually, sorry. we've done yeah. the gear segment before so yeah. a gentleman um, out of Arkansas Ray Jones mm. calls me one day and he's like hey I'd love to meet you I got a product that I want to show you super nice guy whatever and I'm going to show you this mm. and, and just to show our viewers I've got this in the in the little Skype viewer thing, so 
and I'll put it on the YouTube channel. So if you if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, I'll put a picture of this up there so you can see it. You can put your own comments because I'm sure Lewis and John are going to have some comments too. So basically, well, it looks like it looks like a it looks like a like a latrine shovel. You well, see, like on. a, a before, military. <laughs> before you get into character, let me I show was you. I thinking it looks like. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to paint a, a verbal picture. I, I was thinking it was like one of those like those crutches that you get that you just like put your arm into instead of having it go all the way up into your armpit stuck on right. the paddle blade. <laughs> or like so, you're like a superhero kayaker of some sort. <laughs> So you see how, I'm, so you see how I'm holding this thing right here, okay? So this is so you can't really see it, but what it is is it's a uh, a normal kayak paddle blade, and he built this this what would you call that, guys? Arm, the arm breaker. <laughs> he built this thing to that with a handle, so you can have like support, and it makes it more of a, an extension of your arm. If that makes any sense. Right. So what do you guys think of this little invention here? I don't, I, I've never seen anything like it. So I figured it was worthy of bringing onto the hammer factor. Okay. Hey, Lewis first. We'll see. We'll save you for the grand finale. Well, <laughs> Lewis, you first. <laughs> we, we can continue our, our usual pattern of, of speculating about gear. We haven't used. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> if I were going to hand paddle an open canoe, that looks like the, the item I would go for. It looks like, like I mean, I, I, I admire his, uh, commitment to experimentation. This is like his third prototype. He put some, uh, he put some time into this. You seen anybody use it? I have, I have not seen anybody use it, but I am going to take it out and use it. I promised him I would, but I wanted before I did. It seems I, like there, it seems like it would be too ooh, like, right? long. That's right. Yeah. What what'd you say? I, I missed that. What'd you say? Well, you, you have two of them, right? You paddle. Two, yeah, you have two of them. Yeah, yeah, right. <sighs> I'm like Wolverine <laughs> with paddles. <laughs> Right, that's what I'm saying. I'm like an X Man. <laughs> All right, John, what do you think? I, I mean, my test is you know thinking about where how I like to paddle and trying to think if it'd be an improvement. It would allow me to do more things that I currently am able to do, or less that I'm currently able to do. And I'm not seeing it enabling me to do anything better that I already have with a regular paddle. Well, I, my opinion is this would never work for whitewater because there's too much of a chance for it to break your forearm. So it's just, it's 100% out for whitewater. But imagine for like fishing or something like that and you like make a cast and you just want to like, and then just do a little skull. I don't know. You know, you never know. Anyway, check out the YouTube channel if you well, want honestly, to Well, honestly, that's probably legitimate use that's probably legitimate use for those I'm not considering. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about running harder whitewater, and I'm not sure if that would be the best tool for that. I, I did have to use hand paddles for the first time in however many years. I used hand paddles for the first time a month or a couple months ago uh, because I broke a paddle and someone had a set, and they were great. 
I was really amazed. I mean, you could really actually run kind of hardish whitewater with them without that big of a deal. Oh, you can make it. It's better like, than legit- nothing. They were legit. I thought they were legitimate replacement for a take apart. In, in if if it wasn't like two extreme circumstances. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I was surprised. Oh. Like I did the booth at National Tommy's Hole, no problem, no problem. Yeah, but you're John Weld, Whitewater Legend. No, but I'm saying, no, come on. All right, that's <laughs> that's what I have to say about that. We're we gonna talk about the Florida licensing thing, or is that are we gonna move on to our um, special guest? Let's move on to our special guest. We're 21 minutes All right, we in, can do it. and uh, but I do All think right. I, I do think we can cover that next week because that's a big deal. That's actually a huge deal. That's uh, there's something. I just that? like super quickly looked at that thing you sent, but it's like it's user fees for paddling in Florida. Yeah, basically, if you user want to fees put, for small crafts, period. Yeah, if you there's want to, there's something similar in the works in Oregon that's pretty alarming. Yeah, um, if, if you want to put your boat in the water, if you want to put your stand up paddleboard in the water, it's just like getting a fishing license or something. You got to pay your twenty five bucks, get your number, get it registered, and next any, week. And next week, we'll talk about that. We digress. All right, now our special celebrity guest for this week, Evan Garcia, hailing from Bozeman, Montana. Evan is a world-class whitewater athlete. I'm a big fan of Evan's. And let's see if we can patch Evan in here. Evan, are you there? <laughs> I'm here, dude. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Hammer Factor. You're on with uh, John Weld, Lewis Geltman, and myself. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Just surviving out here in the ice box of the Columbia Gorge. Yeah, right. It seems like uh, it's pretty unprecedented. Have you ever seen it like this out there? Uh, definitely not. I'm usually gone for the winters anyways, but this has got me like perplexed. You know, I'm no little white and I'm living in the Columbia Gorge. Like, what do I do? <laughs> you go I'm skiing? climbing the walls, man. Yeah. I've been like paragliding my face off, but it's still like out of season. I'm like hiking up through icy terrain just to like fly for five minutes back down to my car. But it's, it's definitely good to keep me in shape. Where did the paragliding trend come from? I, I'm, I'm watching a lot of your stuff online and Isaac, and it seems to be there's a whole posse out there paragliding. Where, what, what was the impetus for that? Um, man, I honestly think for me it was actually seeing like um, Lane Jacobs starting to fly a long time ago, more like you know seven years ago. And I always wanted to do it, but I was so obsessed with kayaking and I was like, I, I really wanted to fly. I wanted to base jump or paraglide or speed fly or anything. And um, then I kept, I started getting hurt in my kayak, so I had some more time on my hands. And uh, yeah, and then Isaac and all the boys, Nick Murphy, were doing it out here, and I got to go watch them a few times and uh, got the opportunity to work with a really good instructor, and it was just instant love, just like kayaking in the sky. So uh, yeah, super fired up on it. Nice How much you have to spend to get into that? Like, what's what's the outlay of cash right off the bat? Um, well, it depends on how big you want to go. You know, if you want to get, I want to go. Super, I want to go super cheap. Okay. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like the cheapest shit you could find. Yeah, no, I just get into paragliding for. I bet you could do it for a thousand to two thousand dollars. The thing is, is you you have to be. It's like weird club. Uh, it's like a club sport. It's not like kayaking. Um, you have to have like a certificate to fly 
And to fly certain sites, you need to be like certified. You need to be a P1 or a P2 or a P3. So, and it's just like a totally different vibe than kayaking when it comes down to it because you have to basically learn from somebody and you have to have these certifications to fly. But I think there are people that don't do it and they get into it for super cheap and they don't have to pay for lessons. And I mean, I mean, this is West Virginia. Yeah, you totally. Know, you, could, really you just kind of like <laughs> fuck yourself off the hill. That's your business. <laughs> uh, well, I've been following your paddling for a long time. I've known you for a long time, Evan, but uh, some of the viewers may not know much about you. Um, give us a little insight on where you're from, how you got into paddling, um, and kind of where it's taken you. Okay. So, um, yeah, long story. But uh, my dad is a kayaker and has been a kayaker for a super long time. And I grew up in Bozeman, Montana. Um, and he started to teach me to kayak when I was like probably about eight, nine years old in the pool, you know, like everybody else. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't like kayaking right away. I didn't like it. It wasn't instant love. It kind of took me a long time to, to get over the fear of the river and stuff. So, uh, and my older brother, Ian, who was a, and still is an awesome kayaker, he lives down in Pucon, Chile, he took to kayaking way faster than I did. And I, I still think the only reason why I continued to paddle and continue to want to paddle was because he was a kayaker and I just wanted to like do whatever my older brother was doing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then I, I kept kind of just like progressing super, super small amounts every year. I mean, Montana, the kayaking season is so damn short anyways, and our rivers are basically flat. But uh, I didn't really get into it big time until I did a Grand Canyon trip with some older, um, like, cool dudes, and they kind of showed me what was possible in playboats, and they were, like, surfing the top wave at Lava Falls, and I got more comfortable in my boat, and then I just, that was, I think, 13 years old, and I was like, okay, I want to be a freaking professional kayaker you know that was in my head at that point what I wanted to do and then I pretty much just dove straight into it I quit everything I stopped skiing I stopped caring about like anything else and I just went kayaking as much <laughs> as possible you know I feel like that's kind of classic kayaker like OCD why not why not skiing though I mean you live in Bozeman you know yeah well I was freaking one of the really fortunate like whatever couple hundred kids now that have gone through that world-class kayak academy program and um so i basically from the age of about like 15 i was kayaking year-round till now so it's a pretty long time to be kayaking spring summer fall winter and just always traveling never really in winter you know i'd spend a few weeks on christmas break in bozeman and and ski a little bit but, um, yeah, so it just, like, became this crazy obsession and, uh, you know, it just allowed me to travel and, and do things that I wasn't, I wasn't super into as a kid. I, I, don't, I wouldn't, like, paint myself to be a crazy, like, kayaker. When I was a kid, I wasn't very brave or wasn't very, like, into doing crazy things. So when I, like, became this kayaker, it was, like, this whole freaking crazy world that just, like, opened up to me. And I just freaking ran with it. I mean, do you feel pressure now being who you are to run stuff you probably don't, you wouldn't otherwise run? Uh, I mean, no, not, I mean, I have in the past, you know, 
run things that I, um, you know, I've questioned before for sure. And a lot of times it's turned out just fine. You know, I've been like above something and been super scared and kind of like feel that weird nerve and then come through it. And I'm like, yeah, that worked out, you know, like when's the uh, last time that happened? I mean, the last time that happened, I hurt myself. Like I was on the Royal Gorge last summer and I was paddling with Annie Ol, which is always just like super fucking on, you know, like you're paddling <laughs> Annie Ol, it's like, you're going to go fast, you're probably not going to scout, and he's probably going to run everything. <laughs> so I usually say that when I'm with him or Sven Lamler, I run like 10 to 20% more rapids than I would if I wasn't with them. So I kind of have to like mentally prepare myself for that. And half of that is just the, the vibe that you get with them, and the other half is like, they will just go there where you don't want to test something out. Like you're like, I see it, but I'm not going to be the one that just like goes into that seam and like, hopefully I just like get spit off this like 50 footer, you know, <laughs> and they just, they do it. And then you're like, okay, that's like, that's the, the, the probe right there. Well, hell no, <laughs> I got to strap it on. <laughs> so yeah, but anyway, so back to, back to that. Yeah. I was on the road gorge and I was at Scott's drop Chuck Curran Falls, and uh, yeah, huge freaking rapid, like ridiculous. And I knew I wanted to run it. I've always wanted to run it. I've had like a crazy fascination with that drop for a long time, and I, I have run it twice before this incident. Um, the water was a bit low, so it made made the top like 40-footer super awesome, and the bottom thing is just like this staircase of mank, you know? It's a good and annual... Yeah, and he all ran it and just, like, had the most insane line. He just, like, freaking leaned over. His head was, like, buried in the water. He launches this crazy booth, comes down, and just, like, airs over everything. Freaking motorcycle, you know? And I was like, <laughs> ah, just was so stoked. And, <laughs> but I knew it. I knew, like, running that rapid was a huge push. And, like, at the time, I that wasn't, like, my my goal of last year was not to, like, run everything gnarly i just wanted to paddle a lot and i wanted to have a good time doing it but when you get caught up in those moments and you see something so epic like that you know at some point you're gonna just like throw caution to the side and and give it and that's kind of what i did and it was working out so awesomely i mean just fantastic line through the first like three quarters of the rapid and at the bottom i flipped over kind of on this like whole thing and I caught my blade on this rock and basically like dislocated my shoulder as I caught my blade on it and like rolled off of it and then I bounced off the bottom like 30 feet with a uh, no paddle and no no right shoulder and yeah at the bottom I was like freaking hurt and had to get helicoptered out of there and it was definitely one of those moments that I uh I could have avoided having taken like that that safe route but so were you just kind of on the edge of feeling it that day or what, what makes you? I was feeling it, you know, I'd been paddling super good. Like we just, it was only three of us on the river on this trip and we had just been like training through everything. Like the whole Heath Springs Gorge, we just all dropped in, ran it all, you know, it's like boom, 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 boom. Got to Rattlesnake, ran Rattlesnake camp. Awesome. And I mean, I felt really good in my, in my boat, you know, I'd been paddling super well all spring and been, been going big and. But yeah, it could just like, I mean, I get it all the time when I'm above a rapid like that, you know, you're, there's always that, that thought in the back of your mind that like, oh, like you could break bones, you could break your back, you could, you know, anything like that. And that rapid, you'd be crazy to look at it and think that that's not a possibility, you know? Uh -huh. 
Yeah. So when you're running it, when you commit to running it, it's just like one of those things that you're you're putting yourself out there. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so I started paragliding because of that accident <laughs> because I for like four or five months. <laughs> well, well, I've certainly been a fan for a long time, and you know, you I've followed your travels and the whole nine yards, and you've been for a long period of time playing the sponsorship game and and getting in amongst it as much as possible. But here lately, you've stepped into a new venture. Um, what is Waka? Uh, yeah, man. So Waka is a company that is owned by Sam Sutton and Kenny Mutton, uh, two of the best, kind of like most badass paddlers from New Zealand. And they ended up buying a mold from, from Blistic a few years ago and starting their own company. It originally started out in the Czech Republic, and now it's in um, Milan, Italy. And they are basically just designing these boats kind of in, in their garage in Okiri Falls at the Kaituna River. And then, um, yeah, they started this little company, and they gave me this opportunity, this awesome opportunity to be a distributor for the boats here in the U.S. And, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a cool business Ventures so far, I've learned a lot. I've definitely made a lot of mistakes, but uh, yeah, it's cool. And it's also taught me and kind of showed me the like I don't know. I guess like the failed system when it comes down to to like sponsorships in this sport. It's so hard, and it had been so hard for me for so long. And I feel like I'm speaking for everybody. It's like trying to be a sponsored professional kayaker is like trying to be be like the best, the best ping pong player in the world or something, you know? Oh, there's way more money in ping pong, man. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say, would you say after selling boats and seeing the number of boats sold and the challenges of logistically getting the boats to the buyer and being a part of the business that you understand a little bit more on that perspective of yeah. why it's hard to get certain sponsorships? Yeah, 100%. And the other thing that I've realized as well is, like, at what point does having an athlete or a team sell you more products and make you more money? You know, in the end, I feel like, especially <laughs> with this walk thing, it's like... That's a good you know, one, people, man. People know, the, people know the product. People know what it does. It's like... If I give somebody a boat, is, are they gonna sell you know however many boats more? Or it just doesn't it doesn't really add up in the end, you know. And I'm I'm speaking for small companies here, like big companies that have <laughs> you know investors or money that comes from somewhere else. I don't know, but in the kayak I'm, industry, I'm laughing right now, Evan, because I'm seeing the look of vindication on John Weld's face. <laughs> Hey, oh Gil, I want my dry suit back, by the way. <laughs> totally makes no sense. I mean, no, there is, there's, there's place for that. And there is like, Absolutely. you know, yeah, there totally is. And there is a need for showcasing products and testing products and all of that. And there is, you know, like the social media thing. I don't really understand where it's going to take kayaking and pretty much every extreme sport. I feel like it's selling a lot of what, we do and a lot of what people do kind of short with all the short videos and like shitty captions that are coming out and like I don't know I'm not really digging it and it's pretty much taken a lot of the art out of like photography and cinematography and making videos and people's attention span to to watch them so it's kind of just like everything's getting packed down into this weird little 
like social experiment on Instagram and Facebook. It's cool. It's like I feel like there's more love being spread throughout the community and everything. But I mean, I can just see the kids coming up now who are awesome and deserve to be sponsored as much as I deserve to be sponsored. Uh, aren't aren't getting it, you know? I've tried a few times to get some awesome little kids freaking deals and sponsored and the companies just don't need it anymore. They don't they don't wanna, you know, open up and, and give people free products and money to, to paddle because it, it's not they don't need it. You know? This is uh well, it gets this... it gets hard to weed it gets hard to weed through the noise because, you know, you just get you get two hundred people a month sending you, you know, pictures that they've been taking you know, it's 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 just so much noise going on. But I mean, I look at like substantial. That's still. You, I mean, you have a commitment to a longer format production. There. I mean, you, you're going to continue to do that. I mean, I I'm stoked on it. It's hard. It's you know, once again, when the sponsorship has kind of bled out for me. You know, I still work with all the companies I always have, and I have a, probably a better relationship with them because I'm not like hounding them for money or like you know, trying to get little checks cut for edits. And I mean, my, my passion is still making making kayak videos. I'm, I was actually just the last two hours working on a video of Aniel and Sven up here in the Northwest last year, just like charging so ridiculously hard. And it freaking fires me up, you know, it's like my favorite thing to do. But if there's not money in it, I don't, you know, and there never really was. If we got paid per the hour that we worked, it would be insane. We were getting paid like five cents an hour, you know. But, uh, yeah, I still want to do substantial. I still want to make kayak videos. And I feel like there is a, there's a lot of people watching. And uh, they just don't want to watch for like 20, 30 minutes like they used to. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you so give let's talk, for... Let's talk about Hang on just a second, John. What, what advice yeah, would you sorry. offer to someone who was in your position from 10 years ago? New landscape, they're trying to get a plane ticket from you and a free boat. What, do you, uh, what, do you, what, what would you offer that person? What, would, what advice? Yeah, I have, a funny, I have a funny outlook on the whole thing just because of where I've, where I've come from. And I never was very good at at getting sponsors myself. I wasn't very good at self-promotion. I just kind of let my paddling and blog or videos do this, do the talking for me. But, um, I mean, I think big thing with that is being able to be like a, just a people person, you know, be able to, to speak well with others, interact well and kind of influence them and as well, just do something that's do something that's going to get you noticed. You know, like it's hard you can't just expect to run a hundred foot waterfall and have people pay for you to just shred the rest of your life. You know, you need to do something that's like sustainable and, you know, different. And it's hard to do that right now because you have people that are just paddling at such a high level and just, there's always going to be somebody killing it harder than you, no matter, no matter freaking who you are, you know? So it's whether or not I just, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I can't even answer that question because you can go out and run the hardest, gnarliest thing, and the next day it's not going to be that gnarly. Or you can go and win every race, but in the end it's like it's just a kayak race, and, and uh, next year probably everybody's going to beat you. So it's hard. I don't know. I don't honestly I mean, I know how to answer that question. Go to nursing I mean, I school. Say- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go to nursing person, school. The best person we sponsor is uh, Dave Fusselli. 
yeah. uh, because he, he runs, you know, he, he's a, obviously a great paddler, but he's just as happy to paddle class three with, with you know, people from around Ohio pile. You know totally. what I mean? Yeah, and, and he does that for excited a about of, it. He knows, and yeah, yeah, he's he's a man. He's a man of the people, you know. Yeah, and he's been that's, that's a <laughs> totally, and that's kind of like the you damn know? shits in general. Like Jared Seiler was like that, and he was also one of the best, yep. most amazing paddlers for a long time, and he was also just doing that piranha tour, and he he made it his job. It wasn't just like this shred. I mean, we're not we're not like snowboarders or skateboarders. We can't just like travel the world on an endless budget and just go and kayak every river like it just doesn't make sense for this sport i would love it too and i would like if i had the money and the company and i would i would sponsor everybody if i could but it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that <laughs> we need another 10 million exactly. US. that's all we need yeah. so let's talk distribution for a second because you know my, my 11 year old aiden uh, last fall, last winter was we were in the parking lot at a grocery store and it was snowing and he saw a car with a tuna on the roof and he got out in his t-shirt and stood there by the car until the guy came out of the grocery store to ask him where he got it. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was sitting in the car and I was watching him that's shiver called- walking around the car looking at the boat. <laughs> so oh, that's, that that's I mean demand. That's, that's good business right there. We have- <laughs> Right, so you got I mean, you have a popular boat. What's your di- I mean, what's the distribution uh, distribution model? How are you going to get them in here? Where where are they going to go? How are you going to sell them? How can all the people out here out east who are dying to get a hold of one of these things get a hold of one? Okay, this is like my this is my goal for like this whole year because I was out at Moose Fest, um, I guess whenever that was in October, and uh, man, I've never seen so many kayakers, so many creek boaters in my whole life, never. And none of them had walkers. I was like, oh, my God. There's so that, does, that amount of kayakers doesn't even exist in, like, the state of Washington and Oregon. You know, it's like. Oh, they're, they're coming. Just yeah. Your <laughs> we're sending them that way months. by the car load, man. By the truck <laughs> right, load, we're God. shipping them out there. Totally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lewis is going to have a fit over that, right. huh? <laughs> you guys are going to be like the North Shore of Hawaii here. It's going to be a oh, couple God, of hardcores, about 2,000 yeah. uh, kooks out there. <laughs> we're, we're like 90% of the way there. <laughs> we'll be anyway. people as features in the river. <laughs> well, anyway, so yeah, I, I want I want to push towards the East Coast. I really want to make it more affordable for everybody to get these boats. Um, and yeah, like I've said, I've talked with you a bunch about this. John is getting the boats over to IR in in Confluence and and getting them stationed there, and so you guys can ship them out and people can come in to town and pick them up and whatever. It'll just make it way cheaper and easier for everybody on the East Coast to get them. And uh, I don't want people out there to think like, you know, that it's a forgotten market. Like I just because I sell most of the boats are selling in Oregon and Washington. Like there's I sell a ton of boats right here. And for me, it's kind of crazy because I didn't even know there was that many kayakers here. And I'm selling all these boats in Portland and, and Seattle and stuff. And I really, really want this this business venture to work out. And I think I have so much faith in these boats and I, I love the designs. They're so awesome, especially this new gangster that's coming out and i think people are just gonna love it so i want people to to have faith in it and we are doing warranties there's so many like rumors that are going around that we don't have warranties and we don't do this we do warranties but it's a matter of it takes a long time to get the warranty boats here because we have to buy them container by container 
And uh, it's just not the it's not the normal thing, you know. It's not we don't have a factory here in the states like Jackson. We can't just like pump the boats out. Um, so yeah, it's just you're supporting kind of a different thing, and and uh, that's about it, I guess. So I mean, we talked about we talked with EJ about this uh, when we had him on, but you know, when he started his boat company, you know, he made a decision to go with retailers, and from what it sounds like, you're taking a different direction, you know, which is interesting. Because I don't know that there's been a boat company with this much hype about it that's that has you know that's taken this route, and that and coupled with the fact that your dad you know is you know runs or owns one of the <laughs> biggest retail outfits you know in paddle sports or I'm not sure where he's taking the company now, but at one point you know he, you know that was his role. I mean, what what do you think about all that? I mean, I definitely was like almost there in 2016. I was I contacted a bunch of stores and I was gonna sell to them, and and I wanted basically why I wanted to do it is so I wanted to make my job easier. I wanted to just be able to sell 20 boats to this store in Colorado, 20 boats to NOC, 20 boats, you know, just get rid of them and get them out of my hands quicker. But just looking, I mean, I'm a very amateur businessman, and I don't really understand margins and that kind of stuff and and talking to a few people about it and kind of just looking at it it just it didn't make sense and that it's kind of comes down to the amount of boats that we can actually get per year um isn't that much like now they have a factory that can actually produce more boats so i can do two or three containers a year but before it was taking six plus months to get one container full of boats so it wasn't even really an option we'd be you know, we were only able to bring in about 80 boats a year, but now it's kind of ramping up and it could make sense in the future, but it just, for now, the, the operation is so small and uh, the margins are so small right now with, with the international shipping and everything. And it just wouldn't make sense for, for me to do all the work to then sell to a retailer to then have to sell it to somebody for more expensive than it already is. Right. That's, that's my thought. That's my opinion on that. Yeah. Uh, What's it seems like your dad is supportive of. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, Evan and I have discussed this, and I, I mean, whitewater is a tough business, man. There is no question about it because it's an expensive sport. Uh, it's difficult to make the equipment. Um, the equipment goes under a lot of abuse. Uh, the customer's expectations are really high. Um, there's you know, there's there's a sentiment out there that we're the same size as snowboarding or something that we have tons of money to work with and like warranting a boat is no big deal when it is a big or a dry suit or any piece of gear or paddle is no big deal, but it is a big deal. I mean, things like that for as small as we are is tough, you know, and you have to to make a go of it. Man, you got to be shrewd. You have to be really tight. I and mean, we've been doing this for 20 years and it's we're one of the few. I mean, I, I said this before, I think we're one of the last independent paddle sports companies, period, out there. And if you look at whitewater boats, there's in the U.S. There's no independent boat companies in the sense that uh, you know that is not making you know fishing boats or sit on tops or SUP boards or garbage cans or what have you to pay the bills. You know. So do you think um, that moving forward for whitewater, the direct sales model is the future? I think I'm first of all, I'm really energized to see a standalone whitewater boat company. And it's the same way I felt with Liquid Logic when they came around because their big push was to be a standalone whitewater boat company. And for whatever reason, 
you know, we can have Woody or, you know, Shane talk about this. You know, they, they couldn't make a go of it and they got bought by Legacy and, you know, they're part of a much larger company now. And I'm excited to see what what Evan does. I don't know how Evan feels about running a serious whitewater business necessarily because he has a whole other career going on as a kayaker. But um, I'd love to see it work. You know what I mean? I would love to see it work financially, you know, and and uh, whatever it takes to make that happen is I think is great for our sport, you know. Um, that's the, I mean, you're only going to get a great whitewater boat, in my opinion, from a company that's uniquely focused on whitewater, yeah, you know, it's, it's really hard to develop a, a innovative whitewater boat. If you're, if your design team spending, you know, 90% of the year designing other, other kinds of products or not even whitewater paddlers themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I know Evan in the past, we've talked about some boat designs, worked on some boat designs and, and we always talked about a boat that was the one. That was like the perfect creature to just go exploring and running whatever white water was in your way. I know in some of our dialogue before we recorded the show, you talked a little bit about this new boat possibly being that boat. Um, what's up with it? Um, well, it's pretty crazy because talking about all this design and um, the company, Kenny um, Mutton, who's the designer for Waka, he actually didn't even prototype this boat. He never prototyped it before. He just sent it straight into production. And the first time, yeah, I know. It's like he was, yeah, he just has a totally different, um, I don't know. He has a totally different vibe and a totally different way of doing things than I see. You know, I never paddled for Dagger, but it seems like they always are doing these protos. And I see their paddlers getting these prototypes. And I always thought that was maybe the way to do it. But then when he just comes out with a boat like this, and I immediately sit in it, and I wasn't even sure about it because the people at Sickline were like, oh, it's super fast. I mean, Aniel won Sickline in it and had paddled it for like three days, you know? It wasn't his boat. He had just jumped in it and won this super hard race against all these crazy slalom dudes. And, uh, and he's not even, he doesn't even consider himself to be a racer, you know? He's, he's definitely, in my opinion, the best kayaker in the world, but... He has never before been, you know, a racing, a racing kayaker, but he just jumped in this boat and won this race. And it was kind of the same thing I did. I jumped in the boat in New Zealand and didn't know what to think about it. And immediately was like, holy crap, this thing is like so easy. It was so easy to paddle and was so easy to go super fast downstream. And by the end of that trip in New Zealand, I was kind of hopping back and forth between the tuna and the gangster. And I... I, I, it wasn't even a comparison how much more I liked this gangster. And I was just, I was paddling so much better. I was so much more confident. And I ran kind of like this really big, scary rapid kind of my last day in New Zealand. And I don't think I would have run that rapid in the tuna, which sounds weird. And it sounds like not maybe the right way to think about it. But I just felt so much better in the new boat and so much more solid that I was like, I was sold. I was just like, I'm going to use this boat and I'm going to run this rapid. And I did. I like paddled as good as I'd ever paddled in it. And it was just like this amazing thing. And that's really why I like to, to sell these boats. And that's why I originally started to do it because I loved that original tuna design so much that it was so easy to sell people on it. I was like, you know, it was just, it's just simple. Like, do you want this boat? It's like so freaking good. It'll blow your mind. And pretty much everybody who got a boat said the same thing. And Lewis, you, you paddle uh, tuna, right? I do, yeah. What do you think of it? You're a connoisseur of, of, of whitewater designs. Man, I like it's just so different than any boat that I paddled before. And I mean, not to say that it was 
super different than anything else out there, but I think I, you know, I paddled the remix forever and ever and ever. And I, I liked that boat a lot, but I felt like I wanted something that was honestly like easier for just for really hard white water, but something that was still really dynamic and fun. And I, I kind of saw, you know, all these younger guys like Evan and Andy Ole and Gerd and like just everybody who is, you know, bringing such a new progressive style to things. And I was just, I kind of had this feeling like I was just like, I just, I want to get in on this. Like, I don't want to just be the the guy, <laughs> the old guy who's like paddling the same boat that he paddled back when he was like good. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to get one time. So, like a Corsica so S. <laughs> so, so technically, yeah, so technically, Evan, like, you know, let's, let's talk specifics. Is it, rocker profile is it whip is it volume distribution what 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 do you think is is where's the magic happening uh i mean for sure in my opinion the rocker in these new boats is helping you know all i feel like all the best designs that are out right now are high on the rocker profile i like the 9r the toro the tuna the gangster the uh whatever the Machno piranha's new boat everybody's liking that that new rocker design because it's easy like lewis said you know i paddled the remix i still think i've paddled more days in the remix than any other boat ever and uh i love it but yeah it was just it was harder you know i could i could run all the same white water but it was just i had to be way more on top of my game and i would definitely take some more crashes in it but just having that that platform with a huge rockered out nose just makes you stay on top of things and it just allows you to do some crazy stuff and also crazy things happen to you. You know, like when you're in big water, you'll just jump off some wave and like land on another wave and just flip over. But, um, it's kind of just a sacrifice you make. And, um, I don't know. I honestly don't know what makes a boat that good. I've never been that person who just like obsesses over designs and chines and lengths and widths and volumes. I just sit in a boat and, if I like it, I like it. And if I don't, I don't. And it's, it, I kind of, I'm blessed because I sit here and I can like look at the little white Canyon right there. And that river can just like teach me everything I need to know about a boat pretty much in one lap. You know, I, I sit in the boat, I know every little wave and every booth and every move. And when I sit in a boat and run the river, I, I just know how it performs immediately. And, uh, you know, I do like other boats. I, I love, I love the nine R I love that that Toro, they're super fun. They're super fast and, and awesome. I just feel like there's something about that new, that new gangster that just, I, I believe outperforms them. And I believe that people are going to see that in the race season this year. And, and if they paddle it, they're going to feel it for sure. What do you to think, me the thing about those boats? To me, the thing about those boats is, you know, I think a big part of it is like, and I know this is going to be kind of a controversial thing to say, but I think that so many boats in the u.s are they're just prototyped in the southeast and it's like i think that the kind of whitewater that we have on the west coast is just it's just conducive to a different kind of kayak and i think having something you know maybe maybe the stuff that those guys are paddling all the time in new zealand matches up better with you know the kind of whitewater that we paddle in you know in washington and bc and california but just kind of like those higher volume steep runs it just you just want a different kind of boat somehow and like, to me, the thing that was so cool when I first got in the tuna was that it, you know, like I think traditionally you like look at whitewater features and you think about, you know, like, oh, that's going to slow me down or that's going to, you know, I want to miss that thing. Cause I'm going to like lose speed. And the tuna just seems totally opposite to me. Like it, you like look at 
features is how they're going to like how you're going to use them to generate speed. It's like you come out of drops, you just come out so fast. And the way you can like bounce off of curls, it's like you almost don't even paddle the boat. You kind of just look for the feature that's going to accelerate you. And like, maybe that's, you know, part of it's the rocker, part of it's the chine, part of it's just that flatter hull, I guess. But it's, I don't know, it seems different to me than the way I paddled before in different boats. And uh, I don't know, it feels kind of fresh. Interesting. The key design issue out here is uh, the warranty policy because we do like 600 feet per mile with like 80 CFS. That's our paddle yeah. style mostly. Love Evan, tell us when you open up the East Coast, Evan, you get you get ready for that one. Oh yeah, <laughs> guys, paddle I'm ready. ready like ready to come levels back. all yeah. year. Like this boat sucks. <laughs> it broke. <laughs> no, you don't even need. You should just put two. I was always thinking about that for the green. You could just cut a boat in half and then just put the boat in another hull. So you have two holes for the green, you know? And then <laughs> you don't need that much performance. But you're just going to be like, boom, boom. I talk shit, but I have I've definitely gotten uh, – I've had so many good days on the green, and I've definitely gotten my ass kicked on the green. So <laughs> I've had some rush to just experience that on the green. <laughs> well, you didn't, your, um, you didn't dye your hair, though. Evan, uh, Not yet. <laughs> give, us, give us the rundown on this uh, South America trip you got coming up. Yeah, yeah, enough about the boats. Let's talk oh, about yeah, some right. kayaking. What yeah, do you, what do you, what okay, you, what, what's up? Um, I'm heading to Chile in exactly two weeks from today. And uh, I won this grant from Canoe and Kayak um, and this Next In Tire company. $10,000 to go and do like this dream trip. And it was funny because I just typed this dream trip. I saw it and it was like ending tomorrow. So I typed up this dream trip in like 45 minutes and just, you know, sent the email. And it was, it's kind of like a popularity contest, which is, I don't like that about Facebook and, and um, social media contests to win things because it just becomes a popularity contest and it never really ends up working. But uh, I get, it worked for me this time because I have a good social media following and a lot of people shared it, a lot of people voted for it. And I ended up winning $10,000 to go and do this trip. And uh, we're going to Patagonia to run the Rio Baker, Rio Baker, I should say, the Rio Bravo and the Rio Pasqua from their, not their like definitive sources, but the source of the river to the ocean. And uh, got a really good crew to go and do it, kind of some media, uh, some media dudes and badass kayakers. And we're all going to go down there for six weeks and shoot this really cool project about Patagonia and dams and, and what's going on on the uh, Rio Maipo, this huge project. They're damming the the number one fresh source of water for the city of Santiago. So we're going to go try to just freaking go down there and have a good time and, and make a make a little bit of a difference while, while doing it. Where is the Rio Maipo? The Rio Maipo goes into the Santiago Valley from the south side. comes off these massive, like, they're all the mountains that, that drain, um, that the Maipo drains are 20,000 feet to like 18,000 feet. They're insane, insane mountains, pretty much right by Aconcagua, which is the, the biggest mountain in all of the Americas. But um, yeah, it's just this amazing river system. It has these beautiful tributaries, all class five whitewater. The, the Rio Maipo itself is like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like, a, it's like upper Gali, but more continuous for 
like 50 miles or something oh, wow. like that. It's unbelievable. With good, with good wine. With, yeah, with great wine. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I paddled that when we were, we were down there. Totally. It's an unbelievable place. And what they're doing right now is they're drilling a hole through one of these massive mountains, and they're going to dewater the whole Rio Maipo and put it into some other drainage to to make power that's not even, you know, they're not even making that much power. They're trying to power some mines up north, some gold mines or something. And that's kind of, uh, that's the really, that's the biggest thing going on in Chile right now. There's been some kind of breakthroughs down south to, to stop some dams on the, um, on the Pueblo and the Bakker and the Fuda. But right now, the project, we're going to kind of focus on the importance of, you know, free-flowing rivers and um, kind of have the Maipo be the uh, example. Killer. Sounds killer. Well, you know, there may not be a United States of America when you come back, so enjoy your trip down there. I know, man. Old Donnie, dude, he's making it rough. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. The import. We're going to have to start making walkers here in the States. If we don't, we're not going to be able to. Well, let's move on. We, uh, we're getting close to our time limit here. Um, I'd love to, yep. uh, if you got a, check, a second to stick around, Evan, uh, take part in our rants and raves segment. This is where we rant on something that annoys us or rave on something that uh, we're into. And uh, I'll just okay. throw it around. Well, do you got right. rants and raves? I do. I have a rant. I have a rant. Let's hear it. I, I keep prepared this time. Uh, we got to get some. We got to get. We got to get some. Some ladies on the show. All right, because this is like a sausage fest for one thing. It looks like the Trump administration in here. A bunch of white. <laughs> <laughs> all right hey you know and kara would gladly take my place one of these episodes uh because she listens to these and as soon as soon as she listens to them she says you guys are a bunch of idiots <laughs> she's a smart lady so so we need more women that, that's what you're saying we always right. need more women that's right all right that's on the list lewis i got nothing nothing evan <laughs> when is the sun going to shine in the northwest and melt this damn snow that I'm looking at? Uh, last year, last year was like it was it was four feet. We were sessioning like the greatest. We had the greatest session ever. And this year, I yeah, I've gone kayaking like three times since New Year's. So it looks. We brutal. still seem to be making the most of it, man. He's like skiing every day or something. Why don't you guys just go skiing? I know I should go skiing, but I'm just. I'm that stubborn and that stupid, I guess, that I just am like waiting for something that may not happen. <laughs> someday. It's got to melt someday. Someday. I'm just it's... waiting for Chile, man. I'm going to go down there and get beat down in some huge, beautiful blue holes and like <laughs> swim and get all glory. <laughs> Well, let's see. You know, I'm going to I'm going to rant on Outside Magazine. Oh my god, don't get me started on Outside. Yes, dude. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, anyway, I it was this was brought to our attention through somebody out there whatever. Anyway, the headline, I mean, just Outside out, Outside Magazine just puts this supposedly a supported adventure sports whatever. And it basically says, why are adventure sports so boring to watch? Now, I'm not going to get into the whole article. There's some good points in the article and whatever. But at what point, I'm just going to, at what point did, did Outside Magazine become bubblegums and lollipops? Does anybody know? Outside Magazine is, 
it's like the most consumerist magazine on earth. It just like, like I remember the day that I was finally, I was like, I cannot even look at this anymore. And it was an article. It was called fly fishing essentials. And according to outside magazine, the essential item that you need to have to go fishing is a $1,500 fly rod. (laughs) Right. I mean, it exists to sell like plaid shirts and Subarus to yuppies using our lifestyle. It's men's health. So bad. You know, you got to read this article. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it just basically dogged everybody who's trying to put on a sporting event from enduro mountain bike races to downhill skiing to everything. So anyway, whatever. Outside magazine sucks. to be the biggest point, the biggest thing about that is, is who cares? It's like the whole point of this stuff is that you do it. It's not for something for somebody to like, you know, have their hand a bag of chips and watch on their television on Sunday. It's like something to go do. It's like, you know, it's like questions like that. It's like it matters for somebody like, you know, outside magazine who wants to commodify our lifestyle. But if you're actually out living it, it's like, I don't care if you think what I'm doing is boring to watch or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well said. Anyway, that's my rant, Outside Magazine. And uh, Evan, thanks for coming on the show. I'll make sure that my sponsorship proposal is in to you ASAP with my address and everything. I have an awesome YouTube edit I'm going to send you. Pro deals. Pro deals, guys. Pro deals. All right, and that concludes us. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Evan. Later. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right. Later. Peace.